You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Most people view cybersecurity as a cost center. If it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. And so sometimes security has to take the back seat to profit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Marcus Carey. He's an enterprise architect at ReliaQuest, and he's also author of the book Tribe of Hackers. He's wondering if we might be living in a cybersecurity groundhog day. And we are back. Joe, before we get going, we have some follow-up. There was a a gent on Twitter who took issue with a couple of things that we said in recent shows. How do we respond here? Both of his comments come from the Wallet Inspector episode, which I think is like three episodes ago from this one. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, he says, the Joe's discussion of the biometrics missed the listener's point, I think. Fingerprint U2F is a similar use case to phone unlocking. It unlocks a key used for authentication. No biometric data leaves the device. If you're already using your fingerprint to unlock your device, there is zero additional risk of losing fingerprint data to using it with U2F for other services. I agree there is no additional risk to unlocking your universal two-factor app on your phone if you're already using that to unlock your phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, with your fingerprint, rather. I should mm-hmm. make the, make clear about that. And I think I said that in the discussion of this, that I'm okay with this use case of, of unlocking your phone with your fingerprint, because that is not actually sending the information across any internet. It's all local, and it's happening right there. But my point is still that biometric data cannot be changed, uh, like a public-private key pair can, a, a password, or even a hardware token. If my hardware token were somehow compromised through some unforeseen risk, then I could dispose of it and get a new one and Mm -hmm. and be fine. I think that problem of immutability disqualifies biometrics as a whole as a good second factor. Uh, Additionally, Mm. if you're unlocking your phone or unlocking your universal two-factor app with your fingerprint, the universal two-factor is still the second factor authentication, not your fingerprint. You're not actually, all you're doing is using your fingerprint to unlock it. And in fact, on my YubiKey, it doesn't use a fingerprint. I tested this before we went. I, I used a finger I never use, and my YubiKey just worked fine. It's not looking for a hmm. fingerprint. It's just looking for a touch. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So I don't know if that's related to what Jim is saying here, but I still think that by and large, biometrics are not a good multi-factor answer. I suppose the, the nuance that you're pointing out here, I don't know that there's a, at its core a disagreement between you and Jim. It's that if you're unlocking your phone with your fingerprint, that's fine because your fingerprint's not being captured. It's just being used as the thing that unlocks the phone. It's not being sent anywhere right. uh, where it could be released or, or breached. Intercepted, right. It couldn't right, be right, used right. in some kind of like pass the hash attack or anything like that. Okay. In the original listener's question, he was talking about sending inform- uh, using it to move across networks. And, and I don't know how you do that without – use that as a, as a multi-factor without passing some data and, unless you're again using it to unlock a, a universal – two-factor authentication on your phone, which, I again, I'm okay with that use case. But mm-hmm. By and large, I'm not a big fan of biometrics. 
Okay. What else did Jim have to say for us? Jim also said, your report on the Bitcoin QR scam misunderstood what it's doing. And that is correct. We talked about possibly uploading your keys to the scam. This scam is way simpler than this. And Jim, we have to issue a correction here. Thank you for pointing this out. What's going on is when you put your public key into the QR code generator, it generates a QR code for their Bitcoin address. Mm. So let's say, Dave, I wanted to send you a Bitcoin, right? Because I like you a lot and I want to give you like eight grand right now. Okay. So I say, Dave, do you have a QR code for your Bitcoin address? And you say, yes, I do. I went to this handy dandy website and they turned my Bitcoin address or I use this app and they turned my Bitcoin address into an easy to read QR code. And I send the Bitcoin to that Bitcoin address. It doesn't send the Bitcoin to you. It just sends it to the attackers because there is very little discernible difference for humans between one QR code and the next. Right, right. So you, you can't look at a QR code and go, oh, this means that, right? Yeah. So that's, that's how this is working. So okay. thank you, Jim, for pointing that out. That was That's a correction we needed to issue. Right. We were overthinking it. Yeah, we were. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really, really simple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, thanks, Jim, for pointing that out. We want to get it right. And when we come up short, uh, we appreciate folks letting us know so we can uh, try to get the, the good information out there. So thanks to him. So far, we have not made a mistake that has not been corrected by a listener, to my knowledge. <laughs> we can count on our <laughs> listeners yeah, right. to let us know when we make errors. <laughs> that's for sure. But I actually... I do appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jim. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our stories. Joe, why don't you kick things off for us this week? Dave, today I have the tale of two fishing campaigns. The first one comes from Votero, and they have a great story about a well-crafted fishing campaign that is spoofing UPS, FedEx, and DHL email addresses. Hmm. So these are the three major carriers. When you think of a carrier uh, package delivering system, these are the guys you think of. What these malicious actors are doing is they're actually sending emails and they're spoofing the email address, which is something you can do in email, particularly if you are in control of the mail server. Now, a lot of times we see phishing campaigns that come in looking like, you know, FedEx don't respond at gmail.com, right? Mm. Google does a really good job of securing the Gmail servers, so you cannot spoof an email address. I don't know. I may have told this story at, at one point in time. But a friend of mine who was working at a company that I later went to sent me an email and he was able to, in his settings on his email client, was able to make it look like it came from, I think it was queso grande at whitehouse.gov or something like that, which is Spanish for big cheese, right? Um, (laughs) The only thing that happened to him was he got a phone call from the system administrator going, hey, somebody down there is spoofing email addresses out of your area. And he goes, well, I'll have to stop that person from doing that. And (laughs) that was the end of it. But, I mean, this was back in the 90s. You could, and your email client, just go ahead and set a different reply to address. And it would look like that's who sent it. I don't know how hard that is to do now, but it's really uh, almost impossible to do it without breaking into the systems with any of these web clients. But if you own a mail server, you can set these settings however you please. So these messages all look like invoices, and they say view and pay your invoices, and they have pictures of the email in the article. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes. And when you open the attachment, the attachment is a malicious Excel file that then runs a PowerShell script in hidden mode, and that PowerShell script downloads and installs the Drydex ransomware, Hmm. which is uh, bad news, right? So now you've got ransomware. What's really interesting about this is that Votero says the – Fishers are using a tool called Evil Clippy to hide the macro. Uh, and Is now- there any other kind of Clippy? <laughs> <laughs> Good question, Dave. <laughs> 
Right. And they have a link in, in the article about to Evil Clippy. You can go right out to GitHub and get this tool. And what it is, it's a, it's a tool that hides and obfuscates the malicious code in a Microsoft Office document. So even if you do static analysis on it or you have some kind of automated process to, to look at it, you may not catch the maliciousness of this attachment. So these guys have gone through a lot of effort here and you know they've probably set up their own mail server so that they can spoof email addresses. They've used a really good tool for hiding macros in Office documents and they're sending out what seems like innocuous stuff, like a, an invoice from UPS. And if, if it's coming from a UPS address, you know, we always say check the sending address before you click on the link. If you check the sending address and that was your only form of protection, you might very well run this ransomware. Again, another thing you can do to protect your organization is uh, make sure that users don't have access to PowerShell. If a user can't start a PowerShell script, that might protect against this. I don't know about the internal workings about this, but of this particular campaign and this particular uh, malware, but I would imagine that setting a policy so that users can't run PowerShell, because most users do not need to run PowerShell, and it is an incredibly powerful tool that Microsoft has developed. It's really good, but most users don't need it. So just disable it for people. One other interesting aspect about this campaign is that in the DHL phishing emails, they purport to come from a person who actually has a LinkedIn account where he's listed as a supervisor at DHL. And they don't know if this is actually a LinkedIn account set up by the attackers or not, or if the attackers just went out and searched LinkedIn for a supervisor name and took this guy's name. There's no, no way to know that. But it's interesting hmm. that they at least did the research to find somebody who worked at DHL or went so far as to go ahead and set up a LinkedIn account for it. So that's the first story. My second story comes from Zelchka Zort over at HelpNet Security. And she has a story about a very widespread phishing campaign targeting financial organizations. And the, the email purports to come from FINRA, which is a non-governmental agency here in the U.S. for regulating financial institutions. Hmm. And it says that it's coming from two guys named Bill Woman and Josh Drobnik. And if you go to FINRA's website, there are two guys named Bill Woman and Josh Drobnik who are actually VPs at FINRA. And the email came from broker-finra.org. So these guys went out and they bought up a domain that was broker.finra.org. And the email could contain one of three things. It could contain a malicious attachment or a malicious link or a PDF that would direct a user to a website to steal their uh, Microsoft credentials, their Microsoft Office and their SharePoint passwords. Or it could just be a way to elicit a response you know, they send this thing in and go, hey, I need some, uh, I'm going to send you a document. And they essentially establish a rapport. This is a, actually kind of another, I would say, more sophisticated socially than technically. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find two guys that you probably know, or you've probably heard of, or if you haven't heard of them, you can verify who they are. And I'm going to send you a link from a, a similar looking URL or a similar looking email address, rather, I should say, domain name. And hopefully establish some rapport in eliciting a response from you, and then I'm going to send you a malicious payload. I chose these two stories because I think they kind of show two sides of, I'm going to say, 20-sided die of phishing. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say coin, but there is right. no way that there's only two ways to do this. Right. You got I, yourself a D20. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, uh -huh. and I think these are two very different ways of going about it, but it, it's fascinating that these are very effective phishing techniques. One where they impersonate people or say, you know, 
just pretend to be people that they aren't that actually exist. And the other where they actually go through all this effort of just saying, hey, here's your invoice. But there's a lot of effort behind before they sent that email out. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it, it sort of reflects that trend that we've been seeing certainly over the last year and I guess a little bit longer where the scammers are, are putting the work in. They're putting the effort in. This isn't like the old days of, of spamming where it's just sort of a spray and pray kind of thing. These folks, they, they see that they get a return on their investment. Yeah, they're making a business decision here. It's definitely becoming the case that people are a little bit more leery of like the Nigerian print scams. That, that, that kind of stuff almost is noise now. But when somebody targets you with specific information relative to what you do for a living and invokes the name of some regulatory authority, that's very powerful. Mm-hmm. And they're, you're right. They are targeting this and they're, they're doing their research. They're coming up with a good plan and then they're executing that plan. And it's somewhat effective. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it's only somewhat effective, it's very profitable. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that's another thing we see is how much these folks, they iterate and they A-B test and they see what works and they see what doesn't. So these campaigns have evolved and become highly efficient. Yep. All right. Well, uh, we're running a little bit long this week because of our feedback. So I'm going to hold my story for next week. Uh, and it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from a Reddit user, Violet Vare. And uh, this is a back and forth between uh, a scammer and this user. Joe, I will play the part of the scammer. It starts off like this. Hello, baby. Will you be my sugar baby? L-M-A-O. This is a scam, right? No, baby. Okay, send me some money so I know you're for real and then we can talk. I'm not dumb. Money is the problem, baby. How so? Can't have a sugar baby without money. Good. Where are you from, baby? Don't change the subject. I think we should know each other, right? Yeah, but I'm not going to give a random Instagram account all of my info unless I know they aren't effing with me. Okay, baby. Where are you from, baby? I'm going to block you unless you send some money over. Can't trust you till I see that. Okay, baby. I want you to trust me. I'm a man of my word. Good to hear it. How old are you, baby? None yet, but I'm legal. All I want right now is a good conversation, like me having someone to talk to. And make me smile while I also take good care of your needs and get your bills settled. And I will be giving you a good weekly allowance. How much weekly? I have expensive tastes, love. Two thousand dollars. You're effing with me, dude. That's so much money. How do you make a living then? Tell me about your job. I'm a building contractor for the government, baby. What about you, baby? I work in fast food management. That's cool. Yeah, it's all right. How old are you? Send me $100 and I'll tell you. Hmm, that money is effing small. WTF, I have a lot of money to spoil you, baby. I would accept more than that. I will make you happy. Okay, money is not my problem. All right, let's see it then. That's what most ladies do to me after getting the payment. They don't reply to me anymore. They go for another daddy, hun. I don't really have any other options, LMAO. Trust me, I'll stick around if you prove you're real. That's the whole point. Okay, baby. Do you use PayPal? Yes. Let me have your PayPal link right now. 
Uh, and then she has sent something along, and it is, uh, she, of course, very smartly graded out here, so we can't see it. I have no way to make transactions directly to PayPal, because I'm on a business trip right now, and all my cards are on hold. So make the transaction through my Google account, and your payment is on pending. That's why the card is needed to complete the transaction. You're on a business trip during a global pandemic? All you need right now is an e-code on a Google Play card to activate, then complete the transaction right now, immediately. Oh boy, you're definitely scamming me. No, I'm not going to hurt you or steal anything from you, baby. So what exactly do I have to do? Because that's a strange way to pay someone. All you need to do right now is to get an e-code on Google Play cards, so I can use it to activate, then complete the transaction immediately. You got it, you will receive the money in your PayPal account right now. (laughs) That's not how PayPal works. I have no way to make transactions directly to PayPal because I'm on a business trip right now and all my cards are on hold. So I'll make the transaction through my Google account and your payment is on pending. That's why the card is needed to complete the transaction. Okay, but I have to pay money for the card, though. That sounds like a scam. Also, I have none. You can get one at the nearby store. Yeah, but I'm broke and I don't want a gift card. You can pay me using Zelle, Cash App, Venmo, or PayPal. She's giving him every option in the book, Dave. (laughs) But I'm not falling for a gift card scam. At my age, why on earth would I be scamming young ladies on social media? My mom is literally a cybersecurity analyst, dude. I'm not falling for it. I know how distressed and hurt you must be feeling right now, but I want to use this medium to tell you that the payment will be made into your PayPal account once you go get the cards. And how much money exactly will I be spending on it? Because I'm broke. No money. 14 cents in my bank account. Just 50 buck? Nah, I don't have that. Trust is the easiest thing in the world to lose and the hardest thing in the world to get back. To dream anything that you want to dream, that's the beauty of the human mind. To do anything that you want to do, that is the strength of the human will. To trust yourself, to test your limits, that is the courage. To trust is the easiest thing in the world to lose and the hardest thing to get back. That is the courage to succeed. Where did he get that? Did he just copy and paste that from some motivational speech? I have no idea. I suppose. I must have. I love her response, though. Are you on drugs? I'm going to bet that guy on your profile isn't even you. So have you got a Google Play card right there with you? Because that's what will be used to complete the transaction to your PayPal account. WTF? No, LMAO. The choice is yours, baby. Take your damn cards off hold and use PayPal or I'm blocking you. Okay, no thanks for the words. Ha! I knew it. Get a life. Why are you video calling me? I want to see you. <laughs> LOL. After that whole botman malfunction, you're going to pull that? Bye. Dude, I'm not falling for your scam. Okay, baby. Bye. KK. But I promise I won't let you down. If you video chat me and you look like the guy in your pics, I may reconsider, but not with his Google Play. Okay, let's video call. KK. Well, that didn't work in your favor at all. What do you mean? I didn't see you. OMG. OMG what? Did I stutter? Bye. I found another baby. You are very rude. I'm glad. And seen. Right. <laughs> this is marvelous. I love this. She, <laughs> I, I actually chatted with her on Reddit, and one of the things she says in the post is that she wasted an hour of this guy's time. Uh. So that's an hour of time that he wasn't that he didn't spend scamming some vulnerable person. So good work, Violet. That was uh, that was really good. I I, I love that. <laughs> I love that scam baiting. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. 
Coming up next, my conversation with Marcus Carey. He is an enterprise architect at ReliaQuest. He's also the author of the book Tribe of Hackers. And he wonders if we're living in a cybersecurity Groundhog Day. Stay tuned for that. But first, a word from our sponsors. And we're back. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Marcus Carey. He is a well-known individual in the cybersecurity world. He is an enterprise architect at ReliaQuest, but I suppose most people in uh, cybersecurity know him. He's the author of the book uh, Tribe of Hackers, which uh, has uh, actually been turned into a series of books. And our conversation uh, sort of centered on, on this notion whether or not we could be living in a cybersecurity Groundhog Day. Here's my conversation with Marcus Carey. I think we found ourselves in cybersecurity pretty much the same place we were probably 15 to 20 years ago. There's a lot of things that we know how to fix, but it seems like the businesses are moving so fast that we can't implement many of the things that we like to implement. So it's like every day come, you're a firefighter and you have to come in and, and solve the fires. So I think we're pretty much in the same position that we have been for a while. Well, we know what we need to do. But we, we we don't have the resources or time to do all the right things. And what do you think is keeping us from doing the right things? Is, is it as simple to say that it's you know, time and money? Yeah, I think definitely uh, time and money is a big thing. I think time is mostly the thing because you have developers and businesses moving at such a fast pace that it's kind of hard to get ahead of that curve. And at the end of the day, most people view cybersecurity as a cost center. If it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. And so sometimes security has to take the back seat to profit. And so what sort of adjustments do you think organizations need to make to get a better handle on this? I think by incorporating security into the pipeline, per se, making security a part of the everyday routine and building in security, uh, you're seeing a lot of automation and things that make that possible. So I think that we're headed in the right direction. And with this automated build processes, you're going to see people be able to lock down networks a lot better. I'm curious about this notion of breach fatigue. As, as you mentioned, you know, there's, there can be this coming in and, and to fight fires every day. And uh, I suppose that leads to a, a feeling of kind of helplessness. Like this is this is the mode we're in and this is how we have to keep doing things. Yeah, I think that breach fatigue and, and fatigue in general in cybersecurity is a real thing. But I, I kind of look at it uh, like that we just need to get better at doing our job and installing processes that are going to make us uh, better at doing it. I think that sometimes in life in general, if you fail or you're not doing good at something, you tend to take it personal. But I, I believe that what you have to do is you have to separate the results sometimes from uh, what you're doing because you end up taking things personally. And so sometimes the best we got is all that we can do. And so I would just remember that long run. But the best thing you can do, in my opinion, is to put good, good processes in place. And if you follow those processes, I think you'll be a lot better off because if you fail, at least you follow that process. What happens is when we're all over the place and not focusing and, and trying something different every time, then we fail and we're not making any progress whatsoever. Some are a proponent of putting in the right processes, and then over time you're going to get better. And don't take it personal when you fail. What sort of approach do you take when it, when it comes to being a leader? with The folks that you work with, the, the people that you mentor, uh, how do you approach that? How do you provide that strong leadership? When it comes to leadership, I'm former military, so I'm kind of biased 
I kind of think that when you're a leader, you have to have credibility. And one of the things that people always say is, I wouldn't want you know you to do anything that that I wouldn't do myself. And so I think that that's definitely a thing. So if, if people can see you leading by example, and you go out there and you're leading by example, and another thing you want to do as a leader is you want to protect your people as well. So mm-hmm. always do right by your people. Uh, don't throw them under the bus when things go bad. And again, just lead them and, and kind of show them the right way. And then what you'll see is that you, they'll reciprocate and they're going to help you out and you're going to learn from them. And so I think that uh, leadership and uh, leading people is cyclical, uh, meaning that I have a philosophy now that I wouldn't want to hire anyone that I can envision myself working for. Because essentially, as a leader, you're actually working for everybody that you're leading, right? And so that's kind of like my my philosophy is like, I want to help people and I want to turn them into great leaders so they can help one day lead me. Yeah, I I know that one thing that you're passionate about is is kind of demystifying security and making it accessible to everyone. What are some of uh, your efforts there and why do you think that's an important thing to pursue? Well, I think in life in general, uh, we tend to, if I'm good at something, sometimes we tend to hoard that information and that's not good for us overall. So when I, I look at cybersecurity, I look at, at it like a, a Hippocratic oath situation where I'm supposed to make stuff better and I want to I wanna help, help people be more secure. And the best way we can do that is to make more doctors, you know, and so I think that in some countries, education is free because they want to promote more scientists and more engineers and more doctors and stuff. So I, I kind of look at the same way as far as cybersecurity. But the cool thing about cybersecurity, you don't have to get a four-year or six-year or eight-year degree. I think many people, if we make it accessible, we're going to get a lot more people that can come in and uh, do really good work uh, in, in cybersecurity and learn on the job. And uh, that's why I believe we have to give as many people opportunities as we can so they can come in and make a, a dent in the universe, so to say. Yeah, you, you know, I, I want to touch on your book, which is titled Tribe of Hackers, and it certainly has made a splash within the cybersecurity community itself. Can you uh, tell us what prompted you to create the book? So a while ago, I was, I was actually encouraged by a book called Tribe of Mentors by Tim Ferriss. And it was actually a really good book. Uh, Tim Ferriss, uh, he has a popular podcast where he talks to a lot of celebrities and people. Many of these people are their friends. Well, in cybersecurity over the years, I have a lot of good friends. And I thought that it would be a great opportunity for people that don't know some of the people that I know, a chance to understand where they came from and some of the challenges that they faced. Some of these people are giants in our industry. I just wanted to allow people to get a chance to see what was on their mind and what they came from. Yeah, and one of the things that impresses me about the book is the breadth of of folks that you talk to. There's a whole different range of experiences, lots of things to learn from. Absolutely. And I think that what happens in life in general, as we have more experience with things, our, our views change. Uh, and sometimes we can be new to a particular thing and we have a different opinion. And that opinion is valid as well. Sometimes as, as you get older, you might get jaded. So <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you get older, you get wiser. There's all kinds of different things that shape our opinions. And even that book was, the questions went out about two years ago in that book. 
And even now, I've even changed my opinion on some of the things that I actually answered in the book. So I think that having that diversity worked out really well because we had people from all different backgrounds, genders, cultures, and they all gave their opinion. And it was great because it's a, an evergreen book. People can pick that book up 10 years from now and learn from it. What were some of the key takeaways for you? Were, were there any things in there that surprised you or, or changed your view on things? Well, I think that what really surprised me was the aftershock of the book. I would say in cybersecurity, we're really secretive. Back in the day, I used to work at NSA, and we're definitely super secretive from there. But I think that a lot of that culture carries over to the cybersecurity community. It's refreshing to see people open up more and get out there more. Uh, I think that the book was definitely a catalyst in the community itself to share more and to come together more as a community. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think you tapped into a hunger that was there, that people really wanted to have more opportunities to build that community. And in a way, Tribe of Hackers, your book provided that for them. Yeah, I'm I'm really humbled by it. It's, uh, it's one of those situations where it was the right place and something we needed in the community. What is your advice for uh, professionals out there who are looking to do a better job of securing their organization? Do you have any uh, basic tips for them? The big thing is that you're not alone in what you're going through. And don't be embarrassed if you're struggling to secure your organization. Uh, Reach out to people. And there's plenty of people that can share uh, similar stories that you're going through. Uh, I just wanted to let you know you're not alone. And those pressures and that all that that uh, stress that you have, it would be better if you just uncompress, talk to other people about how they're solving the problems. And most importantly, what systems are they putting in place to help better secure their organization? All right, Joe, what do you think? That's an interesting take on things. I, you know, whether we're in a cybersecurity groundhog day or whether we have to be in a firefighter mentality, I, I don't mm-hmm. think those two things are the same. I, you know, in a groundhog day, that kind of implies that we're making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And I think that actually we have made some progress. I think the firefighter analogy is a much better analogy. That one resonates with you? Yeah, that one resonates with me better because, you know, firefighters go to do their job every day and they know there are going to be fires. That's going to happen. Uh, mm. there's, there's no shortage of kitchen fires. In fact, that's the, that's the number one cause of fires, or at least according to my brother who works with the Montgomery County Fire Department. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he and I talk about this kind of stuff frequently. There's not going to be a stop to fires. A new requirement in houses now is to have sprinkler systems in a house. That's a good system to have in a house. My house doesn't have a sprinkler system in it because it's 52 years old. But when I go to my daughter's house, it's newer. They have sprinkler systems in it. So that's kind of analogous to the security situation. You know, 20 years ago, when I got high-speed internet service at the house, the very first thing I had to do was I had to put my own firewall on the inside of that because there was no built-in firewall in my router or my, because it wasn't even a router. It was just a cable modem. There were reports of people just hooking their computer directly to their cable modem and then being able to browse their neighbor's PCs because they were all essentially the same network. That doesn't happen anymore because now all of our cable modems are essentially routers. And that that's the same kind of mentality. And that's happening a lot faster in cybersecurity than it is happening in the, the fire prevention realm. So I, I think the firefighter analogy fits us better than Groundhog Day. Because, yeah, but when it comes to social engineering attacks, that's where I think we're dealing with a Groundhog Day kind of situation. One of the things that my brother says about kitchen fires is the, the thing they hear frequently is, uh, I put some bacon on the stove and I forgot about it, right? Uh, huh. That's that's the equivalent of 
I thought the link was legitimate and I clicked on it. Right. <laughs> it's, it's the same kind of thing. Well, it's a, it's a situation of neglect, right? Yeah. It's a carelessness. I wouldn't say neglect. I'd say yeah. Inattentiveness perhaps. Right. Exactly. Marcus makes a good point about security taking a backseat to profit. Too many people view security as a cost. That's a cost center in a business. It doesn't necessarily show any benefits. And you know what? I'm not entirely sure that that's not a correct way of looking at it. You know, in, in terms of, I mean, Obviously, I want you to have good cybersecurity practices, but there are no consequences for having bad cybersecurity practices, right? Like, for example, the target breach or any of these other major breaches we've seen, there, there are no consequences for these things for companies. They don't see any benefit to it. Maybe this is something for regulation, or hopefully this is something that consumers will decide for themselves, but I don't see that happening. I think there's going to have to be some kind of regulation that penalizes companies stiffly for failing to keep their customers' data safe. Hmm. Automation is going to take us a long way, but it's not going to be a panacea. The biggest problem is still going to be the people, which is why we have this podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) Marcus is right about failing. It's important to realize that failure is going to happen in this field. And it's an opportunity to learn. Exactly. It is an opportunity to learn. And what is important is how you handle that failure and how you respond to it. And I think Marcus's biggest point and the point of most of his books here is that cybersecurity professionals should not be protective of their information. I don't think anybody should be protective of their information or unwilling to share their knowledge with people in their field. I think that's counterproductive. And I, I think that being unwilling to share your knowledge in the field is is a non-starter for me. Marcus made the point that when he interviews somebody, he wants to see how well he would like working for that person. One of the things that I go through when I'm interviewing people is I like to see how open they are with sharing information and their methods and their thinking about things. And I have a, a personal story about this. I uh, One time uh, when I was still working in development, I got put on a new team where we were doing development with a framework that I was absolutely not familiar with. And the person who was leading the development was absolutely unhelpful in any of my questions and understanding the paradigm. When I would ask a question, the person would do things like send me a link to let me Google that for you, right? <laughs> oh, nice. Which, which, yeah, right. <laughs> which, which is not a way to conduct yourself in, in a development team when somebody who's new to the project has questions, right? Mm-hmm. That is going to happen. And that is new people are always going to have questions. And it's imperative, whatever your business is, that you are and every member of your team is willing to help that person come up to speed as quickly as possible. And if I thought that an interview subject was was going to be that kind of a person where they're not going to share their information or they're going to say, just go Google it and I'm not going to help you, then no, I'm not going to hire that person. That's mm-hmm. that's a person I don't I don't hire because this has to happen organically and in a team environment. And everybody has to be a good team player. And this, I think, is the single most important thing in a team player is how willing they are to share their information and their skills. Yeah, and yet you have to nurture that environment that where uh, people feel safe to ask those questions, right? Because otherwise, uh, those questions go unanswered, and then bad things can happen. Absolutely, simply because uh, people are afraid to—they're going to look dumb, or they're going to get uh, ridiculed, or made—you know—felt made to feel foolish uh, for just asking a question, and yep. uh, that's not helpful. No, it is not. Well, our thanks to Marcus Carey for joining us. Uh, again, uh, the series of books, it's called The Tribe of Hackers. Uh, well worth your time, so do check those out, and we appreciate him taking the time for us. And, of course, we thank all of you for taking the time to listen to our show. 
Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.